and we are recording with Miss Christy Wells, who came out. I think you were in like my first hundred or two hundred guests, and now pushing over episode a thousand. So you're one of the uh, you're one of the originals. Um, <clears throat> we talked about um, uh, you know, human trafficking, child trafficking, awareness, and um, everything you're doing to fight it. And hopefully, Baz should be coming in here. Uh, everyone knows Baz. He's been on here before for uh, ARC ARC, the Association for the Recovery of Children, and I feel that in whatever limited uh platform I do have. I have to at least try to like broach the subject. So at the very least, bring more awareness to it at the very most, hopefully enact some sort of change. I don't know what that would be. And I understand that's a lofty goal, but I think I have to try. But Miss Wells, please introduce yourself and explain uh, just exactly what you do. Yeah, my name is Christy Wells and I am the CEO and co-founder of Safe House Project. We are a national anti-trafficking organization that really works in three key areas. Uh, we work to increase victim identification through education. We help survivors escape their trafficking situation and get them placed into safe homes and restorative care homes. And then we also help increase access to care by helping fund, mentor, and launch new safe homes. So Safe House Project doesn't operate any of the homes, but we really are working to increase the capacity across the United States to ensure that those who are escaping trafficking have access to restorative care services. We also do a lot of work on the policy side, um, have been working a lot in DC, especially over the last couple of weeks with the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, which President Biden just signed into law um, right before Christmas. And awesome. so we do a lot of work there. And then we also work to certify and evaluate any program providing residential services to victims of trafficking to ensure that we can elevate the quality of care across the United States instead of settling for subpar. Could you just for, I guess, starters, <clears throat> and I think my I think the number of people watching this show has gone up about a hundred fold since you were last on. So yeah. maybe it will have a little more impact. Could you kind of go over that uh that first point, just mm -hmm. pointing out signs at the very least, just what just what the average person can look for? What's a what's a red flag that any average Joe can can see? Yeah. Um what I will say above anything else is that for the average Joe, um, I would say to take our training. It's a free one hour training that educates anybody on how to spot report prevent and prevent trafficking where they live, work and play. That wasn't a resource that we had available when we spoke um, three years ago. And so it's um, COVID had some good impacts. And one of them was that it allowed us to take our trainings digital. Um, so it's one hour training at IamOnWatch.org. Please, 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 if you do nothing else from this podcast, take the training. Okay. Um, but signs and indicators of human trafficking are um, vast and wide um, because of the types of trafficking. There are more than 25 different business models of trafficking in the United States. And um, each of those manifests in signs and indicators in their own special way. But um, I'll speak to maybe the parents that are on here. And one of the things that we saw during COVID was a 98% increase in online recruitment of trafficking victims. Um, when the kids went online, so did the predators. And so what we saw were kids that were spending time online um, that didn't have maybe the parental restrictions through online um, and, and online access. And so predators were coming to them through gaming systems, through social media, through TikTok, 
through, you name it. And um, predators were coming into our home without ever walking through our front door. They looked for kids who were vulnerable, who were isolated, who were suffering from depression, mental health. I mean, every red flag that was coming out of COVID, traffickers exploited those vulnerabilities in order to begin to build relationships, to, to cultivate what feels like a friendship, um, to cultivate relationships. And they really would work to isolate these kids, to draw, make them draw in even more to believe that they were their only friend in the world, that they were the only person who understood them. Um, they may, if it was a romantic relationship, they would make them begin that, to believe that um, uh, they were going to love them, take care of them. If there was a food insecurity or a um, home insecurity, then the traffickers would begin to say, I've got you, I will take care of you. They would convince the the young one to send images of themselves or something like that. And then that's when the exploitation would flip, the script would flip. And they would begin saying, begin very, being very controlling, forcing them into um, online sex acts that maybe they didn't want. The outward behaviors, to answer your question, that a parent would have seen as a child um, drawing in more, um, becoming... Um, much more irritable, maybe the presence of a second cell phone, um, a lot of time closed off in their bedroom with access to the internet. Um, they would have seen um, them being more skittish, them being more, um, uh, you know, lashing out a little bit more saying, you don't understand me, you don't, you don't get me because what that signals is that there's somebody that's saying that they do get them. Um, and so those are some of the behavioral elements that a parent would see if a child was being groomed or already online exploited, which is still a form of trafficking when there's commercial sexual exploitation, even through pornography. What can, and I'm not a parent, I don't, I don't even have a dog, but what could, what can a parent do other than be a helicopter? Like, I feel like Everything you're saying, you know, my OCD, all or nothing mind would be like, oh, I would lock the kid down and control it all. And then I'm like, and then I'm just, I'm only 32. And I'm like, if my parents did that when I was a teenager, I would be doing the exact opposite of what they wanted simply because I was a teenager. What, how, not, not that you have a crystal ball, but how do, how would parents, is it just seeing, are they more irritable, more, uh, more retreated or more, I guess, closed in their room? Mm -hmm. do they have to look for those sort of secondary symptoms as opposed to, you know, having to monitor every, yeah, have to monitor every message. So um, there is a phenomenal tool that I tell every parent I can. Oh, there's that. Um, That I tell every parent to get hold of and to get it on their kids' devices and sooner rather than later. Um, and I am an example of that. There was a kid who, um, in my neighborhood, I'd had a, abundant conversations with my kiddos about um, uh, pornography and about those things. But there was still a kid that came over, accessed it online um, in our home, and showed our kids. So the tool of Bark is one that can be put on every single type of device. They even have their own Bark smartphone now. But they, um, it can monitor across all of the social media apps, even the ones that are on your kids' phones that you don't know are there. Um, because let's be clear, that happens a lot. Um, and it can monitor for not just um, grooming um, and sexual content. It can monitor for bullying, for um, uh, body dysmorphia, for um, uh, eating disorders, um, 
uh, violence, um, uh, suicidality, they've really done a great job of building kind of a robust um, platform that looks for all of the things that our kids are going up against these days. And it keeps a parent from having to spot check a phone, um, which also just inherently breaks down trust. Kids can still have their private conversations, but when there are those flags and indicators, the parent will get a notification and it allows can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Sorry. Switch from my AirPod. It allows you to have that conversation and you know, it's not a, the technology hint isn't the fix. The fix is us as parents stepping in, engaging with the kids, having the conversation, having the hard conversations. Um, and so I really think that, but that at least signals to us where we need to point those conversations. And the wonderful Baz, Basil Bass has joined us. Baz, this is Miss Christy Wells. Christy, this is Basil Baz. Um, Good morning, Chris. Good morning, um, Well, friends. Um, so <clears throat> I guess that would kind of bring us to the second point you talked about is how to, uh, how to aid victims escaping their trafficking situation because that is, I know from what I understand, that is what Baz does and seems to be something you do as well. So... Christy, could you maybe go on to the second point and describe how you're able to do that? And then Baz could chime in with, with his wisdom. Yeah, of course. Um, so we, uh, as an organization, receive phone calls. We receive online submissions through our submission form, social media reach outs. Um, sometimes it feels like so smoke signals and carrier pigeons are all, all part of the ways that survivors will reach out to us. Um, who are looking to exit their trafficking situation or who have already managed to get out who are in need of restorative services. Um, for us, when we're doing an exit, um, we are not um, the door kickers. We have plenty of partners and friends who are, um, who are or who are the ones who are former special ops guys who at least have the, um, the wherewithal to go into a situation safely and help somebody exit. We don't want to kick down doors. We don't, we're not law enforcement. They're not law enforcement most times, um, but they are looking to help facilitate a safe, safe exit. We've done these where survivors will call a trafficker is circling a hospital and we get them, you know, with the help of the hospital system through a door under a tunnel um, that takes them to a, a, a corporate parking lot and get them out the back door that way. Um, and the traffic, we've got them three states away before the traffickers ever know they're gone. Um, so we've done that. We've um, Uber has actually been a help. I have sent Ubers who have absolutely no idea that they're part of an extraction, but get a survivor out the door in a time frame that a trafficker is gone. Um, get them to an Uber where I can get them to a safe location, and then we move them to a safe home. And so um, we have just been thankful that each time we've had um, partners across the U.S. that are just those dear friends and those people that we know that we can call that. You know, if everything hits the fan, then they know how to handle handle themselves. Baz, could you can you go into um, what it is that that Arc does, and if there's any similarities between what Miss Wells is talking about? Yeah, first of all, Chris, I just want to say thank you for being here. Um, one of the really um, very uh, pointed statements you made, even with all the technology, and thank you for having that. Is you're exactly right. Parents getting involved. Um, and the question that, that we ask ourselves all the time is how many people, how many parents actually care enough to get involved before any of this happens? And if they do and they love their kids, um, then they'll, they'll advance their, their training and their, their guardianship 
and in ways that will, you know, take advantage of technologies like this and people like yourself. Um, because ultimately when you start dealing, well, since we have since 1993, I think the most pathetic thing aspect of all of this are parents that are ending up trafficking their own children. So that's, that's what we're all up against and we see that sometimes. Uh, although with the open border situation and our intelligence on the cartel and the entrepreneurships that are developing, we're probably gonna see this a hundredfold um, outside of the parental structure as well. Uh, with a far more sophisticated um, and organized uh, child sex trafficking industry like we have not seen uh, or we have not been aware of for quite a while. But, but with that said, um, Tommy, we, we on our end, um, we don't really get into, we don't really disclose how we do what we do. Um, uh, we use a lot of tradecraft. All of our people uh, are former tier one operators or CIA, law enforcement, whatever. Um, the reason we don't is on the, on the bottom level of, of society, so to speak, there are certain things that can be done like simply rescuing a kid off the street or very much like, excuse me, Christy's talking about where you may have the, uh, assistance of a hospital or, or a lot of other programs. But when you start uh, pulling kids out of the cartel or you start pulling them out of gangs or start pulling them out of uh, elite satanic cults or whatever it may be, then the opposition, and I had mentioned before, is far more sophisticated. These are the people that um, choose to retaliate sometimes. Um, for example, in my conversations with um, some states' attorney generals, excuse me, they're very aware that as they proceed to go after what we call the elite pedophile class, um, whatever you want to call elites, whether it's global hierarchy or hierarchy of evil or senators or congressmen or doctors, lawyers, preachers, whatever it may be, um, there used to be a time where um, People weren't concerned about retaliation. But, and then there became this moment where they had some put so many of their people in positions of authority that no matter if you exposed it, there was never going to be any accountability. That's slowly shifting over the last year and a half. And that a lot of states' attorney generals are realizing that the federal judicial system. And they also realize that they have power within their own states to do things that federal government isn't doing or, <laughs> excuse me, realizing that a lot of three-letter agencies are so politicized that you can't trust anyone in the ranks. And this is why a lot of our cases over the last five years were handed to us by people inside those three-letter agencies that made it very clear that... Um, Nothing would get done unless it was done on the outside by NGOs, so to speak. Excuse me. Now, that is not to say, and Christy, you made a really good point here. We are not law enforcement, nor do we want to be in law enforcement. Um, your hands get really tied in all the red tape and the bureaucracy. But a lot of us come out of that culture, and we still maintain those really good relationships. So 
With that said, we're finding, believe it or not, that a lot of NGOs and very much to the point that law enforcement is envious of it, have better technology, they have better skills, um, they have better approaches, they bypass red tape, um, and they are slowly uniting uh, under the thought that we're going to do what DOJ can't do. We're going to do what law enforcement can't do. We're going to do, because this is all we do, is we go after sex traffic victims or kids. We're not trying to upstage anybody, but I think a lot of NGOs um, are just sick and tired of children being abused and criminals being let off with an easy sentencing. So there's a, a lot on the agenda for all of us in the NGO world, but make no doubt about it, the NGO world is no longer taking second seat to anybody. You know, most NGOs understand we the people. They understand what this country is about. They understand that, for example, the border isn't getting protected. So what's Texas doing? They're sending militia. They're sending National Guard. They're sending ranchers. They're sending their people and going, we're going to do something about it because it's the right thing to do. Well, with a lot of child sex trafficking advocates, they're at that stage also, they finally realized how much power they have. They work within the law. They don't, they don't break the law. They don't have to. But they are they hold themselves far more accountable than most, excuse me, most employees of federal government that are just in their position to write it out for three years before they get shipped off to another assignment. Now I know because I've worked for government and it's about three years on base, on station, and then you're off to someplace else. So if you have, and I, to some degree, I understand that. They have kids in college. They have to pay their bills. They don't want to rock the boat. But interestingly enough, there are a lot of us that did rock the boat. And we're still all about rocking the boat. We don't really, excuse my French, we don't really give a rat's ass what the federal government thinks anymore. What we understand is these children belong to us. They're our children in America. And so you either lead, follow, or get the heck out of the way. But there is nothing going to stop the NGOs in America from going out and doing the job to save children from sex trafficking. That's kind of what it is. And they come, by the way, they come almost better skilled, more years of experience than the current three-letter agencies do. Because this is all they do day in and day out, 24-7. So when you get someone in front of Congress that's part of a three-letter agency, and you listen to their pontificating on how they're going to solve the problem in America, it's almost laughable because they aren't downrange. They're not on the streets. They haven't once pulled someone out of a gang or out of the cartel or out of a pedophile house or a warehouse or had the conversations in aftercare. They don't, they don't have this experience. I wish they did. They'd be more effective at it. But I say all that to say this to our audience. If you're waiting for the federal government to solve this issue in America, hell will freeze over before that ever happens. That's, that's the truth of it. So, I mean, we're out there. So, again, we're not trying to upstage anybody. And I, and I hope they understand that. We're just trying to get the job done. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do and because we care. We care for the kids and the traffic victims that you don't care about. That's, that's the difference between us and them. This is not just a job for us. This is a calling. And we are out 
to accomplish our mission. And we will let nothing stand in the way. Beautifully said. Ms. Wells, your thoughts? Yes and amen. She concurs. Um, um, no, I am. Um, I, and I so appreciate that because I think that is what we're seeing is, you know, the NGOs, um, I, I think they, in the past, they've been in a position where they have been waiting on the government to equip them to be able to run through funding. And there's been a scarcity mindset where it's, well, we can only do so much because, you know, we're, we're, we're dependent on federal dollars. And what we're starting to see is a unification of um, organizations across the U.S. So I love that you said that, Baz, because I, I'm seeing the same thing. And it's, you know, for us, we have a bird's eye view and work across the national landscape of restorative care and really have been working to network them together. And it's, it's been really cool to see them go, hey, you know what, we're going to drop our logo and our ego and we're going to work together because this isn't about us. This isn't about my brand. This isn't about anything other than how do we serve survivors better? How do we make sure that more people have the opportunity to escape? How do we make sure that they have more of them have equitable access to care? Um, the barrier that we see, um, you know, we can work all day long to get survivors out and we are, but um, the biggest things that we are seeing is that when I, I've worked with a number of survivors, we've handed law enforcement cases. I mean, proving force, fraud, and coercion, done. Like this is not hard, federal case, take it to federal agencies and it's dismissed. I've got one of them. It's been dismissed by every single federal agency it could be dismissed by. You know why? Because she's black, deaf, bald, obese, one-legged and in a wheelchair. And she's not the pretty case. And it is, I finally had the last one tell me a week ago, they said, Christy, you've been trying to get somebody to prosecute this case for three years. Drop it. Nobody wants it. It wasn't, there's no proof. It wasn't that there wasn't, um, uh, you know, a very clear um, trafficking organization behind this. It was, it's not pretty. We don't want it. Now, if I hand them a blonde haired, blue eyed. Yeah, girl scout. The Girl Scouts, they will pick it up and they will pick it up so fast it'll make your head spin and there will be media all over it. And so for us, we have gotten, you know, I heard you say, Baz, that we'll go after the ones that nobody wants to go after. And that is what, that is what we want to see. Um, and we want to see these greater organizations coming together to say, who is, who are the least of these? Who are the disenfranchised of the disenfranchised that nobody will go after, that nobody even knows exist? Um, the ones that are breeders within the satanic ritual occults, that all of those pieces that nobody knows who they are and nobody's fighting for. There's no missing persons at. Those are the ones that still deserve our, our fight and still deserve our attention. But my hope and prayer would be that at some point the tides would turn and the cases would start being prosecuted. We have 185 cases in North Carolina, confirmed cases of minor trafficking to prosecutions, yeah. two. And that is the thing that we are seeing so little of. And that's not my side of the house, but that is something that I am, we are seeing NGOs come together and go, look, we're gonna package the whole thing for you. We're gonna get your evidence. We're gonna get you your victim test. We're gonna get the whole thing for you and hand it to, 
prosecutors in hopes that they will do something. And even still, they're not doing it. And um, for this issue to be fully tackled, there's got to be a consequence for the traffickers. There's got to be a consequence for the buyers. And right now we can provide all the hope and restoration that we want to, but the justice piece of this is desperately lacking. And that is, I think, the biggest scourge on this industry. Yeah, you'll know, it's interesting you said it, Christy. Um, we uh, met with uh, HSI and like like everybody, there's a few good ducks in the crowd sometimes. And uh, <laughs> they had that very same problem. Um, we had an enormous case out of the state. We did the same thing and we do. We do all the we do all the groundwork for them. So they have no excuse for not prosecuting. Um, now, even after you turn over that evidence, of course, on law enforcement, they've got to go and review it and they've got to make sure it's solid evidence. We get that. But they too said that they are so frustrated at the agent level in HSI because they can't get any DAs or any, they can't get a case prosecuted. So we had a conversation about that. And more than the conversation, I took a few cases um, where all the evidence had been supplied and actually went and figured out whose hands they put it in, uh, in the judicial system, right? And then there was, and tried to figure out why uh, there was an excuse for not prosecuting. Here's what I'm finding across the board. And I don't mind the bad guys knowing this. We have the ability to go behind the veil. And I can find out who's looking at child porn and who's not. And when it turns out every single case, when there's an AG or a DA or whatever, doesn't didn't prosecute those specific cases, you know what we found? We found that they were highly involved in pornography. Jesus pornography. So not only are we in an over-sexualized society, but why would somebody who's involved in pornography want to prosecute a case that involves pornography, child rape, or whatever? They won't. And here's why they won't. It's uncomfortable for them. And it's uncomfortable on, a, on multiple levels. But one of them is that they're concerned that if you have NGOs out there, that are able to go behind the veil and pull up their dirty laundry, there's a good chance that you can actually pull up evidence that they've been involved in corruption as well. And that's what scares them because they all hide behind the fluff of, well, of, of power and greed and corruption, as we know. So this is what we found, and this is what we continue to find across the board. When we were asking ourselves, why won't they prosecute? Now, I will tell you one of the things we've been pushing for five years, and I actually went to Washington under Trump's um, leadership to talk to um, Attorney General Barr and Katie Sullivan about this. Excuse me. Um, we've been pushing the legislative agenda and uh, for the death penalty. Anybody who sexually exploits a minor gets the death penalty. Now, the, the, reason, the reason we push that so hard is since 1993, every incarcerated pedophile that I have spoken to, and by the way, let me let me just make this, let me just say this while I can, because I was just on my Facebook page with this. Somebody came on and said, um, I thought you were a Christian. I thought that you should forgive everybody. And pedophiles, it's a mental disorder. Let me make this clear. It is not a mental disorder. It is a crime. And as long as it is a crime, fire and brimstone is coming. Okay? 
I mean, you can be a psychologist, you can think that all day long, but I'm going to tell you what, there's a difference between sinners and the wicked. And God is very clear about that. I'm telling you why. Sinners generally miss the mark and they repent. The wicked spit in the face of God. And if you don't study your scriptures and find out what God does with the wicked, he hates the wicked. Let me repeat that. He hates the wicked and he has no mercy on them. So I'm not God. Those are God's words. So I look at it the same way. So anyway, with that in mind, I realized that every pedophile that I had, had interviewed, I asked them the same question. I said, what is the one thing that would have deterred you from molesting that little four-year-old girl in the garage or that little 12-year-old boy or whatever? I, I picked each case because I knew their cases. Every, every single one said, if I thought I was going to get the death penalty, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I'm going to get seven and I'll be out in three or I'm going to get 15 and I'll be out in eight, whatever it may be, because they know how the system works. So you're right, Christy, unless there is a, hard, a more powerful. What's the word we want to look for? Penalty? Punishment? Deterrent. Exactly. It's never going to stop that way now. We're never going to end child sex trafficking in America. It's been around forever, but we're going to take a big bite out of it on our watch. That's what we're required to do. But if you don't consider the innocence of the most innocent, which is our children, and actually people in general, but, but for us, it's children. And you don't have an understanding of how you murder a child without killing them, which simply is sexually exploiting them because they die every single day of their life. And if they're lucky to live with all the trauma over the age of 19, their life is still messed up. When you really understand that, when you have seen enough of that in your life, you understand that we should do everything possible for one of the most heinous crimes in America to stop it. The question is, why do we not? Well, the legislators or the lawmakers don't because they, they either don't understand it or two, they're complicit in their thoughts about how children should be handled. And the majority of people in America, no, I shouldn't say that majority, but there are a lot of people in America that believe that it is okay to have sex with children, to rape children, to use children, to sacrifice children. Sadly, those people are in positions of power to make laws. So our question if amongst us and NGOs is, how we still do our job knowing that they're in power and that's how we form her strategies and all that. And so, excuse me, with that in mind, if I get one attorney general, of one state, just one, Katie Solomon under attorney general Barr said, if you get one AG, one state to pass the death penalty, the other states will be shamed into doing the same thing. And we will put a big bite out of child sex trafficking because what does a pimp do when he grooms? He goes after a kid, right? I mean, you know, and they groom them all the way through. So that agenda, we want more people to get on board with this with that agenda. We think we we think we finally have scored those meetings and we have talked behind closed doors with a number of attorney generals that are willing to get on board with that. We'll see what happens with that. But that is an initiative that I would encourage every NGO um, to get involved with, to be honest with you. And we will give them our package, you know, and just say, here, take it to your, you know, your state's attorney general and go, 
this has to be done. And I will say this one last thing. Knowing what I know about this problem, any attorney general in the United States, and I unashamedly say this, that would not pass the death penalty against child rape is complicit in the crime. There is absolutely no reason why we should not be passing that in every single state. And if you don't, it makes me wonder just what type of person you are in your mind and in your heart, which leads me to think you must think it's okay to exploit children in America. Pretty simple. If, Tommy, I'm going to, I'm going to steal your role for a second because I have a yeah. question for Baz. So in the world of normalization of pedophilia and calling them minors attract minor attractive maps. Where um where are you guys addressing things from a policy standpoint on on that? Because we know that that is you know the issue, Tommy, that we're seeing is that trafficking is an issue that so many people have got behind that all of these other agendas have started Christmas treeing themselves mm -hmm. to um to that agenda, making sure that they can um get through. So. The LGBTQ um, piece of this, which is fine, LGBTQ are a, a, um, an extremely targeted population within human trafficking. Um, we see that on Wash, Rinse, Repeat. But as an extension of the LGBTQ community is M is one of the letters, depending on who um, is giving you the, the letter rundown. Um, and so they are trying to attach that as a um, sexuality. Um, and so trying to keep the um, criminal implications for sex with a minor uh, from following through to criminal levels, simply by calling them a, a minor attractive person mm -hmm. and calling it a gender orientation or a sexual orientation. So that's what are your thoughts on that? Well, coming out of Hollywood, you know, I had had more than ample opportunities to be around the gay community um, and working with a number of gay people uh, that actually have left the LGBTQ XYZ or whatever else they're, they're going to be now. Um, I've had the opportunity to actually sit with them and understand better where they came from initially 20, 30 years ago when they were looking for gay rights. Um, as you know, the, and in their own words, uh, the organization uh, is not something they want to be a part of anymore because it has morphed into this advocacy of um, perversion in their own words. For example, the LGBT, they they went from LGBT, LGBTQ, and then they went to sponsoring BLM. We know BLM as a socialist organization to jumping on board with anybody that had a cause outside of gay rights, Okay. So now you look at the organization as itself, and it makes you wonder what else, what is their other agendas? And now the organization itself is pushing the minor attractive person thing. So when I take a look at the organization overall, um, and I know they have outside influences, uh, it's extremely disruptive. Their agenda is extremely disruptive. And so, from a policy standpoint, this organization, we'll, we'll call them that, because um, I don't know what they're going to be tomorrow. I don't know if they're going to be XYZT or whatever it's going to be. But they, in our book, the idea that they want to 
They want to legalize people who rape children. And that's what it is. You can call it whatever you want. You can say you're a minor attractive person and you can be attractive to minors, but acting upon that and then trying to legalize it so you don't get in trouble for it, that's 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 um, open season for our children. And because of that in itself, they have crossed the line for us that is um, unexcusable. You know, so they blemish themselves in our eyes uh, for eternity. The fact that they want to support the rape of children. And they can, and so what they do is they just basically try to change the words to make it, to soften it up, to make it more acceptable. Like it has a right. Well, guess what? Murderers, when you give murderers a right to commit homicide, okay? They're people. They like killing people. You're going to legalize that too? You know, you're going to leave, oh, Let's do like Gavin Newsom. Let's um, let's now legalize the, the theft of anything from $900 below. You're still a thief. Or let's let 1,800 pedophiles out of prison because they have rights. The reality of it is, is when you did damage in society to children, to other people that are living by the law, there's a penalty that has to be paid for that. And you lose your rights. You lose your rights. And you know you're going to lose your rights. But if, if all of a sudden you know that nothing's going to happen to you, crime will run rampant. So the minute we legalize minor attractive persons, and this is what's funny. It's like saying globalism when globalism is really socialism and communism. They just changed the word to soften it up so people would uh, accept it easier. The reality of it is minor attractive persons are pedophiles. The fact is pedophiles rape children. The fact is, that's wrong. Now, in our, and not just in my view, I'm going to tell you, I, I do not compromise. I know the difference between right and wrong. And raping children is wrong, okay? It's wrong in God's eyes. It's wrong in my eyes. And if you're a parent that cares about your children, I'm pretty sure it's wrong in your eyes, too. <laughs> but when I hear parents say, you touch my kids, I'll kill you. And I hear some law enforcement officer say, well, you're going to be breaking the law. What he doesn't understand is that father doesn't care. He doesn't care if he spends the rest of his life in prison for protecting his daughter or his young son. So I am not a supporter any longer. Actually, I never was a supporter of the LGBTQ. I just tolerated it because it was upon us. And guess what? If I'm not mistaken, and I may have this wrong, the gay community is only like 2.8% of the whole United States. They just have a big voice. And because they have a big voice, everybody thinks they're larger than they are. But I'll tell you what, I think people are getting tired of it, to be honest with you. People aren't afraid to stand up and say enough's enough. You guys don't know how to draw the line. You started with this, saying that this was just about marriage equality, but now it's about this, and now it's about this, and now it's about this other thing. Next thing you're gonna do, you're gonna wanna legalize bestiality. And they will go there. You watch it. They will go there. Or they'll say, you know, Satanists are people too. And they deserve to sacrifice children. I mean, it's their right. That's just what they are attracted it's their to. Culture. They like to their culture. Yeah, they're going to go there too. They, if we've learned one thing out of nothing at all, they don't draw the line. They don't stop. Their agenda is false. They have other things that they want to do to destroy society. And 
So to answer your question, Christy, um, no, we don't like them. We don't like your agenda. Uh, I don't mind telling them I don't like them. Now, I have people that I know that are gay, and I like them, and they're, and they're, one, they're wonderful people. I don't pass judgment. Right. But their agenda is very different from that of the- Totally the, different. Those totally promoting different. a normalized pedophilia. Yeah, totally to the point that, as I mentioned earlier, the ones that I know, <laughs> might donate, they don't want to be a part of it. They don't want to be associated with the LGBTQ, X, Y, Z. They don't like it anymore. They just say, look, I want to live my life. This is who I'm with. I don't want to be part of an organization. I don't want to press my 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 beliefs on somebody else. Um, and I certainly, certainly do not want to try to convert some young five-year-old in, or six-year-old, seven-year-old in elementary school, you know, to make a decision on their gender when they haven't even grown up yet to determine what life is all about. They're adamantly opposed to that. I've had those conversations. So what they have told me <laughs> from, their, from their own mouth is that they believe that the organization that they used to support, the LGBTQ, has an agenda to recruit minors, to confuse them with all the transgender stuff to the point that they're not, they're not productive citizens ever. And they never get a chance to grow up. So in other words, in the old days, if you recruited somebody into the gay community, and I'm using their words, it was generally an adult. Now they realize that they can't, two women can't have children on their own. Two men can't have children on their own. So they're creating their own families, structures, so to speak, to kind of look normal in the society's eyes because they believe that some normalcy will be easily accepted, and also that they can continue their culture, so to speak, in time. So what do they have to do to that? They have to go after children. And that's what they're doing. They're actually going after children. Because most children that grow up to be adults get smarter than that. They know whether they're male or female. They get to see things. They have experience. But if you can get a child, no different than if you recruit a child into communism or socialism <laughs> or into a satanic cult, or whatever you want to be, if you can get to a child whose little brain is a sponge, who mm -hmm. they don't know any better, they don't know better what's right and left. You know, they're they're still discovering stuff. But if you can get to them and you can influence them into your way and your methodologies, you recruited them. Well, even outside of, I mean, I 100% agree. But even just outside of that, the things that we've started to see in because we're going to bump up against issues in creating solid legislation against trafficking of minors and, and rape of minors and all of those things. If all of a sudden this narrative that, no, that's not a rape of a minor because they're a minor to attractive person. And now you have to prove force fraud or coercion of a five-year-old. Um, it's going to muddy any of the legislative initiatives that are there. And I've started to even see the um, normalization of pedophilia seeping into some of the medias. Um, so I think Wall Street Journal or somebody just got blasted for their kind of articles around normalization of pedophilia and where they're talking about, um, uh, there was an article that was talking about the guy who attacked, um, Nancy Pelosi's husband and it was just normal article referencing, you know, this guy had a lot of things on his social media where he was speaking out against those who were Jewish, those who were black, those who were in the LGBTQ community, those who were pedophiles, those who were, and he was listing all these groups that we would all agree can be 
you know, experience racism, experience bigotry, like experience all these things. But the fact that pedophiles was listed in that list, along with those who are black or those who are Jewish, I thought, huh, you're, you're creating an empath an empathy for those groups, but then you're expecting that same empathy to be glommed onto with the pedophiles. And so, um, that is something that we are starting to see eke its way into policy and um, the legalization of sex work and the you know all of the decriminalization narrative um, that's starting to pop up of we have to legalize sex workers because criminalizing them is um, creating more harm than good. And um, along with all of those different narratives is this one that is speaking to, um, again, normalizing pedophilia and the decriminalization of having sex with minors. And so that is going to create, that continues down that path that's going to create more barriers in the legislative framework of our nation um, as opposed to helping. Yeah, what happens generally is when the problem becomes so big that the government or legislation can't manage it, they just go ahead and legalize. That's it. Like it's the marijuana issue we had in America, right? We know the cartels involved. We know they make billions of dollars. And they allowed it to get so out of hand that it got beyond everybody that they finally just went, well, we're just going to legalize. And now we have the cartel legally operating in the United States. There are people on the cartel's list. It's a commodity that comes from other, generally from other countries. So that's one of the reasons why they do that. We've seen that after fighting legislation in California for four years and years and years, which is, you know, one of the, one of the hotbeds for legalizing prostitution as well, you know, and, and you know what that's going to cause when you legalize prostitution, if there's a, let's say, let's say there's a, an operation going on in, I don't know, some, a building that they're operating out of, the police are never going to go in there if there's a minor in there. Why? Because it's legal and they they, they can't go, they can't legally go in and disrupt that necessarily. And there's all kinds of other arguments for that, but, um, you're right. It does muddy the waters a little bit. Um, and I think we have to stand fast on uh, what we know is right and what's true. Um, and it's a fight that we will we'll take up every day. Um, a lot of it has to do in, to, to actually um, elevate what you were just saying. Messaging is very important. Um, when I was in the CIA, messaging was, I mean, a lot was about messaging and just sticking little things, little places. So you're exactly right, Christy, when it talks about all of a sudden, why did pedophilia show up with all this other stuff? It's messaging. It's to soften up. It's to gain sympathy. It's to make them a part of something else. And also in that article, whether it's true or not, if we all of a sudden are able to paint a picture in an article of a guy that's totally bizarre and he's off his rocker and he's blaming black people and he's blaming um, everybody else, and you put pedophilia in there, you go, God, this guy's a hate guy. He hates everybody. And look at the innocent people that he hates. He hates the pedophilia. Uh, he hates this. He hates it. And all of a sudden, you're right. All of a sudden, we start becoming sympathetic and uh, towards that, you know, rather than taking it a piece. So it's all a part of messaging. Um, and that's what they try to do. Um, and there are a number of people in Congress in Washington that are actually sympathetic to pedophiles. A couple of reasons. They're involved in it. We know that. Uh, they cover for each other. We know that as well. 
Um, DOJ is not going to prosecute them. We know that as well. And those that are listening from the Hill right now that know me, you know who I, that I know who you are. So don't worry. Your time's coming. You know, whether it's here on this earth or when you guys. leave, you're going to stand before God. And trust me, it is not going to be nice. So, um, and they know that. They know that. Because if if what they did was, if there was nothing wrong with what they did, then why did they do their deeds in darkness? Why did they do them in secret? Why did they cover up for them? Because why did they hide it? Yeah. And they know it's wrong. <laughs> so this is one of the reasons, Christy, why they're pushing so hard to legalize pedophilia. Because a lot of powerful people that are engaged in it, if they get caught at it, they don't want to be, they don't want to have to serve time for a crime. They want to be able to say, well, number one, it's legal. So there's nothing you can do. Or number two, I have a disease. So it's a mental condition or, you know, um, I have a doctor's note or whatever it may be so they can continue to do it. And we can never, ever go down that path with that. Um, if we do, our children will never be safe. They will never be safe ever again. I don't think no matter what the law changes to, even if during our time here, all the evil becomes good and all the good becomes seen as evil. Even if that law were to change, I can assure you that from the rank and file in America, I am pretty sure doing a predictability study that justice would still be served. There would be so many angry Americans out here that anybody and everybody that was known to harm each other would lose their life. And there is absolutely nothing law enforcement could do about it. They would. I mean, America, there, there are some things, there are some things in America that people will not stand for. I mean, look, we're on, we are on the cusp of revolution in our own country because of all the stupidity with the Biden administration. And I'm not being political. Look, I, I just want the right people in office leading our country, right? But this is very obvious what this agenda is. And we are on the cusp of revolution in our country. And I hear the conversations in the ranks everywhere I travel across America about people that go, we're smarter than 6 January. When it comes, the next time it comes, they're never going to see it coming this time. So they know who their enemy is right now. But there are people that are, are bound and determined to protect the Constitution of the United States and protect our country. So if they're willing to risk their lives for something like that, do we not think that they would be willing to risk their lives to protect their children in America? Absolutely. Absolutely, they would, and they will. And so the best thing and the smartest thing that DOJ and the Hill could do is not legalize something like that. Because the minute you do, boy, I'll tell you what, the doors are going to be open, and it'll be indiscriminate justice, which is not always good, to be honest with you. I'm just saying, I predict this could happen. And <clears throat> I don't mean to to cut it short. I know Miss Wells, I know you have to run. Um, I will 100% put you two in touch over email. Um, and once again, Christy, could you say what the, the website is uh, for people to take that test? Yeah, it's iamonwatch.org. And Baz, I'll put your, I'll put ARC in the description. Um, yeah, well, again, I don't mean to to shut this one off abruptly because I do have to get to another podcast, but I will put up uh, the way up at both y'all's websites and social media and all that good stuff in the description. And I will make an email thread with you too. And 
y'all can go on and do whatever, do whatever God's work you're doing. Thank you very much. Tom. Thank you so Chris, much, Baz. So much, Christy. Take care, everybody. God bless. Thank you so much.